0: I invite you to open your Bibles to the end of the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. 1 John 5, 18 says, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. If you opened up your Bible to this verse and started reading right here, you might say, oh no, I'm doomed. I can't be born of God because I sin. I hope you don't come away with that doomed perspective because that's not what it means. Or you might say, I knew it. Christians say they're not perfect. I've heard that slogan. I've seen that bumper sticker. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. But look, this is proof that they think they're little angels. So before you get feeling doomed about yourself or accusatory towards Christians, let's consider three things. Let's consider the language, let's consider the context, and the culture as we look at this verse and endeavor to understand it. First of all, the language. This book was originally written in Greek, and you're probably familiar with parts of speech. Um, The verbs here aren't the easiest to translate from Greek to English. We have an action verb here, and so it is written here, and it makes it almost sound like that if somebody is born of God, that they don't sin at all, but really in English, if we were to translate it, it means if someone is born of God, they don't continue to sin. They don't keep on sinning. That's the tense of the verb, and you might say, well, why isn't it translated that way? Well, the English Standard Version puts it this way. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So sometimes one translation does it better on a certain sentence, and that's, that's the case here. That's why when you study your Bible, we encourage you to use multiple translations. It's, we're doing our best to take the original and put it into English. So it's meaning here that somebody who is a child of God, born of God, doesn't just keep on sinning. If you're born of Him, you don't keep living the way that you were living before. You're saved by faith, by faith through grace. And that because you're saved by faith, the Lord makes you more faithful than you were before. He changes you, the direction of your life, from pursuing sin to pursuing good. So the Christian doesn't continue in the lifestyle of sin. That's what the language points us to. But how about the context? If I were to just grab one sentence from an important conversation that you had Couldn't I possibly make those few words or that sentence take on a completely different meaning if I grabbed it out of there and there was nothing said about what was before or what was after? That's what you could do here if you're not careful. So let's be careful about the meaning of the the idea here that the speaker and the writer is, is putting across to us. What does it say before this in the beginning of the book? If you go back to the very first chapter, I'm going to read three verses, so I'd like for you to see them, because this is the premise that John is making. This is what he means. So, 1 John 1 8. Listen to how clear this is. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, if you and I say that we don't have any sin, we're tricking ourselves, we're lying to ourselves. And that isn't true. It just isn't true that we don't sin, that we haven't stopped sinning. That's the point. But read on. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This famous verse, and rightly so, doesn't say if you sin. It says if we confess our sin. If you confess your sin, because the Lord knows that you have it and you know that you have it. If you confess your sin, He is faithful. He's the faithful one. And he will cleanse you. He'll forgive you from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive you completely. My brain is still trying to fathom what it means to be completely forgiven because I'm tempted to hold on to my sin. And the scriptures say that if I confess my sin, he is faithful and he's just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness unrighteousness, to make me as clean as as he is, to make me holy, to make me pure. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, here it is again, clarifying chapter 5, verse 18. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So to say that we don't sin at all is not only to make ourselves liars, but it's to call God a liar. To say God doesn't know what he's talking about because he says in his word, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the context makes it clear that John is not saying that Christians don't sin at all. God wants to make sure that we know what to do with our sin. Confess it, be cleansed. So we have the language pointing us to the meaning of the verse. We have the context. This is not about Christians living perfect lives, sinless lives. Now about the culture. Consider the culture that John was in. The apostle John lived... In a society where people said they were Christians, but they continued to live a life of sin. That's the cultural context of this letter. And at the very beginning, we learned about the Gnostics and Gnostic thinking and Gnostic philosophy was getting started in the first century. And this is what the Gnostics taught. That since we have physical bodies, we can't help it since we have these temporal frames we just have to sin i mean i'm just a person of course i'm going to chase after everything that i want i'm i'm helpless i'm i have to live that way they taught that since we have physical frames we're going to sin no matter what but they separated the physical from the spiritual and you might remember that they said well i'm i'm really bad in the flesh in my body but i'm really good spiritually I'm really good on the inside. I've got a pure spirit, but I've got a dirty body. And we sang this truth. God is able to give us clean hands and pure hearts. That's what John is talking about. We don't have to live in the lust or materialism or jealousy. The philosophy of the Gnostics is still being spread today. There are those who confess Christ as Lord. They say Jesus is is my king, Jesus is, is God, but their lives are really no different for it. And the idea is, well, I, I'm just a person. What can I do about it? They front the idea that it isn't practical or real, that we can actually change the way that we live. So such people have like a spiritual experience that feels good for a little while, maybe, but it's not true. If you're born of God, you'll not continue in that downgrade of depravity. You won't just keep floating downstream with the sway of the world. You won't continue in sin. Now, I didn't say you wouldn't sin at all, but you won't continue the path that pursues unrighteousness. When the Lord saves you, there's a battle that begins. And you might say, well, I don't want a battle. Why would I sign up for that? Well, before you give your life to God, you're just going with what this passage is going to call the sway of Satan. You're just going with what you think you want and what Satan says is best for you. But when you get saved, a battle begins and God equips you to fight and to prevail. He gives you power. So this verse is about not being swept downstream with the sin that surrounds us in this world. Now look at what it says about that sweeping sin in the middle of 18. We'll read it again. But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The first question that we covered was, is your life pursuing pleasing sin? Is is that the direction of your life? Is your life pursuing pleasing? pleasing sin. This pleases me, I'm going to chase after it. Or is your life pursuing the righteousness of Jesus because you're his child? Now I ask you a a second question, and I think the answer for all of you would be yes. Are you seeing the sway of Satan? It's in verse 19. Now maybe you don't understand it to be the devil or the enemy, but look, Satan just whispers and it becomes the will of the world. The whole world following after who the Bible calls the wicked one. We already have the human propensity to be prideful and to be immoral and to be materialistic. That plagues us. But the Bible says here that the wicked one woos the world and that the world is under his sway. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's not the king. He's not the king of kings but he's the prince that's controlling the atmosphere of the world. Not the atmosphere of the church, not the prevailing direction of the church, but the prevailing direction of the world, the unbelieving world. That current, that sway, it is not powerful on accident. Now maybe you see the depravity of the world, you see it sinking, you see the downgrade. How is it that it's so organized? How is it that it's so unified? where does the power come from? What's the origin of that current? Why is it so pronounced? Sucking billions the same direction. It's because of the wicked one. He is appealing to people's selfishness. He's writing a narrative for them to follow after. And this should sadden you. They're just following what the wicked one is telling them to do. That's the sway that it speaks of here. The whole world under the lies, under the sway of the wicked one. Now, the further lie is the lie of the Gnostics. I can't help it. I've got to go out and live according to my base desires. I have no choice. Woe is me. The current of the river is just pushing me, and what happiness there is in just floating downstream. How effortless. How can I not do it? The enemy appeals to our selfishness, and he tells us that it's righteousness. He appeals to our pride, and he tells us that it's purity. He appeals to our lust, and he says, that's love. Now, seeing the sway of Satan can be really, really discouraging, and the enemy wants us to be downtrodden about the state of the world. He wants us to think that we have to participate. That's just the way it is, but that's not true. You have this place where you can be untouched if you're a child of God. hope you didn't skip that part. It's at the end of 18. A place where you're untouchable to the sway of the world. I clearly remember a long time ago, this guy that I worked with, he was a believer, and I didn't even really think he was that strong of a Christian when I first knew him, but that doesn't really matter. This girl made this big time pass at him. And she made it known, and this is kind of rare, that she was angry that he didn't receive her advances. And another friend of ours, who, she was not an ugly girl, by the way. Not, she wasn't ugly at all. And I was together with my friends, our co-workers, and another guy found out, he's like, what? You, 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 didn't, you didn't go out with her? What's wrong with you? Are you human? Like his appeal was like, are, are you not alive? Are, are you like, what's, what's not matching up here? And I remember my coworker who was a Christian, he, his state was like, it just wouldn't have been right. He, was, he didn't have to operate at the most base level that says, you know, I'm just an animal that's an opportunistic. The Lord empowered him to make a decision and he was untouchable, even to her. And most people would have said, oh, why wouldn't you take her up on that offer? So are you seeing the sway of Satan? Do you know it's from Satan? Do you know he appeals to our selfishness and our crooked desires? I think you're seeing that. I hope that you understand that it is orchestrated, that it is tactical, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. When I see that, when I read that, the Lord tells me, why would you want to be a part of that at all? Ask yourself, Is what I'm thinking about under the sway of Satan? Is the way I'm operating, the decisions I'm making in my life, is this one of the lies that he tells the world? And I'm believing like I'm an unbeliever. I'm just following. I'm just flowing downstream with the lies of the devil. Are you seeing the sway of Satan for what it is? Number three, has God made you untouchable? If you're a child of God, he has. Because look at the middle of eighteen. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. This means your father provides a place of safety. Have you been there before? Where the temptation is definitely there. The turmoil is there. The corruption is there. But God takes you and he draws you in. And in the safety of his arms, you're untouched. You're unscathed. It's not that you're unaware it's that you're in his safety. Do you need to live there more often? I do. Where I'm in the safety of his arms, in the safety of his will. Being born of God, this place where we're untouchable. It's my job at night to lock up the house. I'm, most, many of you know I don't lock my car. I, I don't care about my car. If, if somebody takes my stuff, they take my stuff. But I lock my house at night because I don't want anybody to hurt my family. Right? And I go around and I'm locked and loaded like a lot of you guys are. I'm like, that's, that's the safety of my house. Now, it's not perfect safety. It's far from it. But still, my endeavor as a father who wants to be a good father is protection. Our father has a place that's untouchable for us, a place of safety from sin. And the devil can't tamper with, or molest, he can't have his way because you're in the Lord's care. Now, sometimes we treat this place of safety like it's this bunker or a basement, like you're into the safety of the Lord and you can't see the light of day. You're just locked away, it's depressing, oh, the Lord is keeping me safe from all the fun. No, the Bible teaches that it's a higher plane, that you mount up with wings as eagles, that you run, that you run and you're not weary, you walk and you're not faint, It's not a place of dim, I just have to stay here because I don't trust myself. No, it's a place of victory. It's a shelter from the sin that is sucking the world dry. And if you don't have Jesus in you, you don't stand a chance. You don't have hope. You don't have the pure power. But he says that he'll take you. He'll receive you if you'll believe upon him. And if you go back to chapter 4, verse 4 of this very book, it says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the Lord. He's inside you and he's greater. He will win the battle every single time. You can be in that untouchable place. Is he in you? Are you in him? Are you abiding? Let him give you sight, spiritual sight, shelter, and safety. Have you ever been to one of those virtual reality experiences, maybe you've been on a ride where you're got on the goggles and you know in your mind that what you're seeing isn't real, but it's working its magic, so to speak, on your senses. How many of you have done that? You've been on like, really, not that many of you? Okay. And and you're thinking, I'm just looking at something and it's making me feel like this is real, but it's, it's not real. It's not the full reality. I remember Nick Jr. telling me about when he went to one of those and put the eyes on, and I think he was supposed to like walk a plank between two skyscrapers. And really, he was just on a plank on the ground. <laughs> and everybody's watching him, giggling, because he's got the blinders on. And he said, I mean, you think of Nick being scared, that just doesn't happen. He told me, I was terrified, and I wish that I was there to see it, because I've never seen him scared. <laughs> He's like, I, I was like shaking. It it seemed like I was a thousand feet up or something huge distance. And, and then as soon as I took the, the goggles off the, it's like, I'm just right here on the ground. I'm just on a, a plank. And my coworkers are laughing at me because they're, it's like, that's the sway of Satan. He has the whole world living according to his lies The blinders are on. They can't see the reality of eternity. They can't see the reality of forgiveness and how sin is sucking them dry. But you and I can live in that house of safety, can be in that place of safety. So take the headset off. Take the blinders off. Let the Lord deliver you, strengthen you. Are you keeping yourself in his shelter is the next question. Question number four. Some teachers take issue with the phrase keeps himself. Do you see that in verse 18? Because they say that God is the one who keeps. And there are some manuscripts that that say God keeps him. And there are some manuscripts that say God, born of God, keeps himself. But Look at the truth here because you could go to the very last verse in this book if you doubt. We have a, a responsibility to keep ourselves from sin. Cuz it says little children, keep yourself from idols. Just because the Lord is keeping me, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't endeavor to have him keep me. Because he's holding on to me, it doesn't mean that I shouldn't hold on to him. When it comes to sin, when it comes to I don't I don't need to work for my salvation. But when it comes to clinging to God, to making no provision for the sin in in regards to its lust, we have a responsibility there to stay in the safe house. I can't protect my kids if they sneak out at night. Doors locked, windows locked, ready for the intruder. But if my child, still my child, decides, you know what? I don't like the safety of my house. I'm going to sneak out. Do you ever sneak out? You say, that doesn't happen anymore. Yes, it does. <laughs> People still sneak out. You're, you're really old if you don't think it still happens. <laughs> and then and it's like, well, the father wants to protect. The safety is set up. But the child goes out looking for trouble. Isn't that the case? So we have the power of the Spirit, but we also have the prerogative to go out and walk in the flesh and to leave ourselves in a place where we're not sheltered. Although we have the power of the Spirit, it is not as though we live our whole lives untouched by the sway of the world. You didn't need me to tell you that. Did you you know that your whole life is not untouched? You're like, oh, I realize that. Okay, the question is, do you know how to live in the power and the protection of God? Do you know what his safety is? Will you dwell with him? Will you walk in the spirit? Will you abide? All those phrases in the word of God that tell us what it's like to let him protect you. He is mighty. He is formidable. Nobody is gonna defeat your father. I've been in that situation before with my little sisters and and even with my own kids where I really want so badly to protect them i just want to go to that somebody's house and dismantle them (laughs) but guess what my loved one has chosen to abide with the destruction they've opened themselves up and no matter what i do to go and annihilate the destruction and, and the sin right there's enough there's The sin is still there. You you know what that's like as a parent, as a grandparent, as a spouse. We're just like, I wish I could protect them, but they won't protect themselves. Just a little glimpse. The Lord, he's a good shepherd. He wants you in the fold. He's the door. Nobody is coming through the door. Nobody's coming through Jesus. You like those old movies? Well, you have to come through me. Nobody's coming through Jesus. Let's make sure that we're keeping ourselves in his shelter, away from the sway of sin and the, the lies. The mind, it's a battlefield and every thought is important. The wicked one, he wants leverage. He wants a foothold. He wants just that little bit of power that he can turn into a lot of power. So the word says, take every thought captive. Lock the doors, don't wander off. Live in the safety and the serenity of your Savior's strength. Untouchable. What what an amazing truth that the Lord is our victor. He's our protector. Next, do you give glory to God for understanding? Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, In his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal. So, so do you give God the glory for your understanding? Look at what the verse says. Jesus gave us the understanding to see the sway of Satan for what it is. He gave us the truth, and the truth has set us free. We're in him. He's our shelter. He's our fortress. Knowing Jesus, knowing the truth is not an accomplishment that should cause us to be arrogant. Oh, this world, it's so duped, it's so tricked. They're just drifting down, and I'm enlightened. Do you know why you believe? It's because the Lord has given you understanding. He has opened up your eyes. That's no glory to you or to me for believing. It's glory to God for lifting the blinders. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That is, those aren't statements of pride. Look, now I've worked my way to the place where I can see so clearly in the spiritual realm. No, the Lord gave you understanding. He pulled you in. You believed upon his name. It's not something you can do in your own strength. The scriptures don't say anywhere that you should try to believe. Just try to believe. No, instead... I remember the man who said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. He, call out to him, because he will give you understanding. Nobody is born again by their own intellect or by their own brawn. They're born again by submission. I need understanding, God. My eyes are darkened. I'm calling out to you to show me that there's something beyond where I'm at right now show me the forever, show me your grace, show me the cross. Jesus delivered truth to us when he gave his life on Calvary's tree. He gave us love there, but he also gave us truth, a truth that a lot of people don't want to deal with. It's the truth that our sin is is so perverted that Jesus had to die a death of torture in order for us to be forgiven would you would you look at the cross and yes see your lord but see your sin on him see he he hung there separated from his father shouldering my sin and the sin of the whole world so that i could have my eyes be enlightened, the eyes of my heart, so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be free. He gave me that truth. Look at how often it talks about truth in verse 20, that we may know him who is truth. He is truth, and we are in him who is true, and that's Jesus. Our attitude, our perspective towards those who are unbelieving should not be, you know, you're just a fool. Now, they are fools if they say there's no God, but the attitude should be there's, there's faith, and God will give it to you. Call out to him. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's never come across as, oh, we have something that you can't have or that you're not good enough for or that you need to do something to get. No, just come and believe. Surrender. Glory to him for giving us this understanding. One more question. Are you keeping yourself from idols? Because the last verse says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. This Greco-Roman culture had many gods, and those gods had images fastened to them. And you can even see the the sculptures today. I mean, most of the gods were, the so-called gods were Greek, but I want you to see that they had sins or priorities, you could even say, attached to them, So people put themselves under a certain God or cried out to a certain God depending on their needs or their desires. They had Zeus and or the Roman named Jupiter and in Acts chapter 14 those who were there in the city of Lystra actually called Paul Zeus because he Performed a miracle by the power of God, but Zeus, being the king of the gods, the god of sky, the god of thunder. It's sad to me when I was teaching history. It's like the students sometimes were like, we would study the Protestant Reformation, and that some of them would just be dead. Some of them came alive. But they, some people they treated the Greek gods and their Ro- their Roman counterparts as just like, wow, this is like superhero. They just knew everything about these fake Greek gods. But there was something about the gods that wasn't fake. They had Poseidon, the god of the sea, so if you were a sailor, if you were a traveler, if you were a trader, you submitted yourself to Poseidon. The Romans would would say that's Neptune. Um, Hades is the god of the underworld, but also the god of wealth. Anybody serving wealth here today? Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, sexuality. Anybody serving any of those gods today. Apollo, the god of music, poetry, prophecy. Aries, the god of war or violence. Artemis, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of the hunt. Are you, are you a hunter? That's who you would, would pray to, right? And Artemis shows up, it's called Diana, that's her, uh, her Roman name in Acts chapter 19. So the society, they had these images, but I want you to see that the subject of the so-called gods are the same subjects that we are tempted to serve today. Wealth, throwing our lives into accumulating so that we'll be set for the rest of our lives so we can live 100 years and never have a need. Immorality, how, whatever your temptation might be saying, oh, if, if, if that's what I'm into, that's who I'm going to pray to. Let me ask you this. Don't we have symbols of wealth? Don't we have symbols of immoral sex? Don't we have symbols of, of music or symbols of beauty? How about the gods that are seemingly noble? I point these out to you. Is, it, is safety inherently wrong to want to be safe when you go out on the seas or when you travel? Is it wrong to want sustenance, to to want food, or even wealth? Is money in and of itself evil? No, it's not. But the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So what often comes into our lives as Christians, if we don't keep ourselves from idols, things that become way too much of a priority than they should be. Our safety, our wealth, our pleasure, and pretty soon, those things are coming before the kingdom of God. And there's not a person here that doesn't need to keep themselves from idols. There's not a person here that doesn't need to say, Lord, I want to be set apart for you. I want to be sanctified. I don't want to chase after anything. With, I don't want anything to engulf me but you. I want your priorities. I want to seek first the kingdom. We can look down on the people in the ancient times and say, oh, look, they they were barbaric. They had little symbols of, of whatever their pleasure was. We're the same way today. Maybe not quite as superstitious on the outside, but what are the loves in our life? There's a song that says, take all my idols, shatter them all. I think of the iconoclasts who were, when the church divided between the Orthodox and the Catholic side. And their big thing, the Orthodox Church, was part of it was all these images. They've turned into idols, all these statues, all these pictures. And they literally came into churches and like bashed up images of of the saints. And you would say, why did they do that? Because they saw that those had become idols to the people. And they said, we don't want idols in our lives. And if you're violent like me, you appreciate that. I could smash some (laughs) idols physically. But spiritually speaking, do I want to get rid of those appetites and those priorities that I know are too big in my life? Do I want to surrender those to the Lord? Do I want to sacrifice for him and say, Jesus isn't just a part of my life. He's the center of my life. He's my everything. I don't need to be concerned about my tomorrow. He holds my tomorrow. My safety, I'm not going to be stupid about it, but I can't be paranoid about my safety. I can't get all off into my pleasure, even if I think that my pleasure in and of itself is not something wicked. Because if that's what I'm living for, then I'm not living for Jesus first. John writes this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Very, very clear. We may not bow, we may not chant, but we do give time, attention, and even love to things in front of the Lord. So keep yourselves. The keeping here in the last verse is something continual. I didn't just keep myself once or twice. We keep falling back and the Lord keeps bringing us back in again. Serving something else can happen really, really quickly. When that happens in my life, when when I set up an idol and I'm distracted by it and it becomes my number one and the Lord convicts me, it ought to grieve my heart. It, it ought to cause, it shouldn't just be like, oh, well, I, I've served idols so often and I'm, just, I'm used to it. No, it should break me on the inside. Any person, any activity, any pursuit that is not his good pleasure should not be mine. And as we sing to the Lord in closing, as we praise his name, these words are deep and they're powerful. Don't sing them if you don't mean them. Don't be the person that just gives the Lord lip service, but not life service. But if you can say, like, I, I, I need you to clean out my, the idols, they keep seeping back in again. Lord, I, I want to be kept for you in your strength and in your shelter, then sing it with all your heart. Would you stand and we'll pray. Lord, we lift our lives to you right now as, as your children. And we need your, your purifying. I thank you, Lord, for giving us everything that we need for life and for godliness. I pray that our day would, would look different if it needs to, Lord. I pray that our tomorrow, if you should give us one, would, would be set on you and on nothing else. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your patience with me, for your patience with your people. And, and I pray, Lord, that that we wouldn't forget this great truth, that if we confess, you're faithful. I pray for anybody right now that just is thinking, well, I'll probably just go back into serving whatever, I may as well not repent. I pray that you would say no, speak to them, Lord, and tell them no, you you're a saving God and you're a keeping God. I pray if they're discouraged, about their sin, that they would run to you, not to themselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.